Baxi's musical podcast. Between 1980 and 2010, when they released their final studio album, the band In Excess released 12 records, which went on to sell a ridiculous 75 million copies worldwide. They were one of the biggest-selling bands in Australian history behind only ACDC and the Bee Gees. And of the 70 different singles that they would release during those years, including eight top 40 singles in the United States, nearly all of them were written or co-written by my guest today, Andrew Ferris. This was a band that had gone from being a popular Australian new wave band to a college radio staple to one of the biggest selling bands in the world in just a few short years, releasing songs like What You Need, The One Thing, Need You Tonight, Devil Inside, New Sensation, Original Sin, Never Tear Us Apart, and a bunch of others. This was a band that was on a serious roll until the tragic death of lead singer Michael Hutchins in 1997, 24 years ago. And while the band carried on for two more albums, it was Michael and Andrew Ferris that started the band in 1977. It included his two brothers, Tim and John Ferris, as well. And since then, Andrew has gone on to win nearly every conceivable Australian music award there is. His music with NXS was nominated for three Grammys and 11 MTV Video Music Awards. This year, Andrew Ferris has released his self-titled debut album. And while the album is a bit of a departure from what NXS fans might be used to, with a sincere and unapologetic leaning towards country music, there is no question that Andrew's talent, his craftsmanship, and his conviction is still very much intact. This is my conversation with Andrew Ferris of NXS on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, uh, thank you very much for switching things up. I know there was some confusion yesterday about uh, the timing and the day, and, and, and I just don't know what sadistic jackass came up with the whole international dateline scam, but I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're able to, to, uh, to switch things up. And, no, you're welcome. And, uh, it's, you know, funny thing is I think the dateline begins in New Zealand, and it heads our way, and I always wondered why New Zealand doesn't get to open the stock market. <laughs> I was thinking, I mean, you guys, you know, your Wednesday is uh, is my Tuesday, and by the time my weekend starts, yours is almost over. You get Christmas presents before I do. It's just the whole thing seems to be very confusing. Yeah, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> I think it is. So I've had a chance to listen to the, uh, to spend some time with the record over the last couple of days, and I, and I really like it. And, and it, you know, when I first heard that you were going in this direction, my first thought is he's he's doing what? But then... I'm listening to the record and I'm, and I'm hearing, you know, not just a lot of sincerity in what you're in what you're doing. And while there are elements of, of country in it, I'm still hearing a lot of Andrew Ferris in these songs. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing I'm hearing songs that could have been arranged to have been in excess songs. I mean, whether it's songs like Come Midnight or you know, Son of a Gun, even even Good Mama Bat. I'm I'm still hearing you in those songs. Well, yeah, you know, I, I guess the fact of the matter is, is that. You know, I, I had a big career with NXS, which I'm proud of. I mean, I like that band. I, I think the the guys are awesome musicians. My brothers, my friends, and, you know, we had a big ride together. But then again, it's also my personality. I'm a songwriter, and what I do, and I kind of, I've got my own thing I do, and it's hard for me to stop doing that. Well, and, and it sounds like, I mean, there's been a, a pretty substantial period of time between NXS and, and, and now. It seems like you found yourself in a better place and certainly more confident to be the front man of this on this album. That's not something you've done a whole hell of a lot of in your career. No, that's true. Uh, and in the past, uh, 
you know, especially within excess, you know, Michael was such a, he was one of those guys. He was one of those dynamic lead singer people that very hard to replace. You know, he was really, yeah. really good at what he did. Um, and he was a good lyricist too. But the thing is that, you know, for me, I, I didn't want to ever compete with that. We used to joke about that with each other. You know, and, and we used to say, you know, look, I can't do what you do. And he said, I can't, you know, and, and, and vice versa, you know. So it was never really a, a problem. And we were lucky. And it wasn't like uh, some other bands, I think, where you you have two, you know, two guys or, or two two members of a band, guys and girls, whatever. And they're competing with the same instruments and the same style. We didn't work like that. We were very different. But that's where I, if you're saying I sound reasonably comfortable, that's where I am comfortable at the moment is um, just being me. I think the first recollection I have of NXS was, was probably when I was in high school and Shabu Shaba came out. And then I, uh, I was just in, in researching this, I realized, oh, my God, it's been 40 years since that uh, that came out. So that automatically makes me old. But on the other hand, I'm not the guy that wrote it. So I don't know how, how that you make, makes you feel. But it's hard to imagine that that's been 40 years since that record has come out or, or nearly 40 years. Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things um, that – you never really know as an artist, you know, the, whether your your songs or your records are going to be interesting to people uh, in a week, let alone, you know, four <laughs> decades or something. You just have no idea. Yeah. You know? And you, you, you launch into it and you do the best you can. Everyone's really the same like that. I think we're in excess is really, really lucky as a band and fortunate is that we styled things a little different than other people were at the time with what we were doing. We deliberately kind of fused a sort of uh, combination of funk and rock and, and kind of uh, keyboard stuff all in at the same time. And, and we were experimenting with loops and, 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 and samples real early on in our career. And, of course, that's what most pop music is now. You know, that, that's where it's not surprising that some of our stuff circulates around the world on, on modern radio. And, and other acts have said that to me. They said, what is it with you guys? Why do you get to get on radio? And we don't. I said, well, probably because our material, we were using some of the same technology people use now. You also had, and, and maybe this is true or, or, or not, that depends on how you see it. You guys also had the benefit of being able to kind of find your voice a couple records in. It wasn't like, a record company signs you and say, you know, you're not going anywhere with this. And they, and they, and they stop it before you had a chance to develop. You guys really developed. And I think once Shabu Shaba came out and then the swing came out and then all of a sudden now you're coming up with the, you know, some of the biggest albums of, of the eighties, you had that opportunity to develop the craft of songwriting on your own, but also with Michael as a lyricist and just as a band, the, the more you guys were out, the better the band seemed to always get. Like, there was always a progression with you guys. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I think that's true. Uh, I think that we used to work at it. We didn't just, you know, we were fortunate in that, in that we were able to get on as people. You know, I see a lot of bands and acts, you know, it's very sad. They start arguing with each other about issues and, you know, throwing <laughs> stuff at each other. And we never really got into that. We just thought that's a waste of time. Why don't we improve ourselves, you know? Uh, and that's, I, I think you're right. I think we, we took that journey both in the recording studio and on stage. We, we, we really, really honed our craft, especially on stage. And probably one of my frustrations uh, with, with, with the band's career later on was I, I actually wanted us to do more recording and a little less playing live. We were playing around the world all the time, you know? 
and it, whilst that was exciting and it's a great way to see the world, I think we worked in 52 countries. Um, I, it wasn't that so much. It's just like you get to a point and you're like, let's make some new music. You know? um, and I think that's where I'm comfortable now being Andrew Farris. And what I'm doing is I'm just making music because it, I feel like I, I've, got a, a, you know, I've got something to share with people. Hopefully they'll like I, I was watching uh, the documentary Mystify, uh, the Michael Hutchins uh, story earlier this week. And, and one of the things that I didn't realize, you know, you talk about you guys getting along and, and developing and, and working so much. I didn't realize how hard you guys were working. I mean, I, I mean, it, it just sounded like there was never any real downtime for, for any of you and to have a, a band of, of six people, three, three of which are brothers that put, you know, all that potential personality conflicts on, on hold for a, a larger cause. You don't see that very often in a lot of bands, especially as they get more and more successful. Yeah, I think that's true. But I, I also think, and I think you'll see this in other <clears throat> areas of, of, of work and, you know, uh, you know, other, other, uh, what's the word, other, other pursuits and, and other jobs and things where, where it's really important that people work together for a common aim, you'll sometimes see, not just in the music business, but you will see people put aside, you know, petty grievances or, you know, I'm not talking about big, huge problems, but, you know, smaller ones. And people will say, let's just put that aside because we can, we can see the bigger picture here. And, and that probably is true, say, the military, I guess. They train you to do stuff like that. And, and I think that's where, you know, we found as a group, we, that we our strength was being able to work together you're right you know and we we kind of worked at that but it wasn't easy and it, you know i won't say it was easy you know there was times you know <laughs> you, you 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 wake up in the morning and you've been on tour for like 14 months and you're like there's that guy again you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and i'm sure they felt the same way about me but you just get on with it you know do you, do you ever get to the point though along the way i mean you're where it just there has to be so much pressure, whether it's, you know, self-induced pressure or, you know, external pressure saying you need to do better and you need to replicate success with further success. A lot of bands, you know, for, for many artists, I think that's very, very hard to accomplish. And in the, uh, the documentary, there's one, there's one part where the record company didn't want to release. I think it was, I think it was kick. They didn't, they didn't see any commercial potential and it wound up becoming a, an enormous international hit. I think at some point you either say, this is what we do, and so we're just for, you know, foraging ahead, or do you start listening to those outside voices and have it affect you? That's great. And I think you know, it's interesting that, that the Kick album, that's very true. When we first put that, uh, when, we, when Michael and I first wrote the songs, uh, we had the blessing of the band, which is, again was really unusual for a band. They all said, "Yeah, you, you know, we want you guys to write all the songs because you're the guys that seem to write the hits." So, so and that in itself is unusual because most bands are very, very competitive with who gets to have their songs, you know. And I always look at that as a very kind of mature and clever decision of the other guys in the group because that's exactly what happened. We had a monster album, and I think that that particular album also. It's very true what you said that you know it, it did get rejected by people at first, and I think it was um, I think it was because we were really we were really using ideas and thoughts and technology and things that weren't current at the time on pop radio that much. And you had a few people doing it, but not to the extent that we started to 
to experiment with it. And I think that the labels got real nervous. They're like, well, well can't you put on spandex and grow your hair long and jump on stage? <laughs> That's what everyone else is doing. It's like, well, we don't really want to do that. You know, um, that's not what we're about. And we never were, and we never would have been. You know, That didn't really suit us. And, and if it did, it would have been for fun. We'd do it for three nights and then change to something else. That's the way we were as people. And you know, that, I think that worked for us down the track. You know? it's, just, it's, it's funny to, to hear that story of, of a record company you know, not believing in something that you created. And then to have it go out and then be, you know, the biggest smash of your career. And anyone who listens to that record says, okay, well, that's a hit, that's a hit, that's a hit. You know, it's it's loaded with, with commercial potential. It just proves that, you know, sometimes record companies are run by people who are simply not music fans. Well, I think that's a, you know, that, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly right. I think you could also add in there record companies now run by lawyers and accountants. Right. And I think they're counting money. And sometimes I look back at the people like uh, Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler and <clears throat> those guys that were championing people like Ray Charles and other people in the old days. They were passionate music fans and they were doing it because they loved the music. And I think all that kind of stuff comes into play. I think if people especially in the arts of doing things, you know, with integrity and they've got the right thinking for something, it's more likely you're going to get great music out of it. When you guys were uh, were touring to to the degree that you were and, and playing, you know, huge crowds and it's it's night after night, and you don't even know what city you're in half the time, I know that you uh, got weary of that after a while, that, that, that you felt like, you know, you wanted to be, you know, creating music rather than, you know, the grind of, of always feeling compelled to uh, to perform it. Do you think the other guys were feeling the the same exact way? Because I know in the in the the documentary Mystify, it seemed like in a lot of ways Michael was feeling that too. And and did you know he was feeling uh, the way he was feeling? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I you know to me, I, I, I a lot of that part of my life um, was really sort of what I call mountain climbing, um, and. You know, you're on your way up the cliff face, and you know, you know if you stop, it's a long way down, and you, you know, you're getting closer and closer to the top. The funny part of this conversation, in a, in a, in a way, is when once you get to play the biggest stadiums in the world, <laughs> and you get yourself all over television on the, on the hit charts around the world on the top ten, you start thinking, where's the top of the mountain now? And I think that's the part that really can mess with your head. Is that? And I think again. It, we, we did that as a band. We we burst our own bubble. Actually, we started we started saying to everyone around us, agents, management people, we don't want to play stadiums for a while. We just want to play pubs. We want to play small places and clubs because we just want to get clo- you know closer to our uh, our fans and, and start enjoying it like we're, how we started off. You know, yeah. and also you get a gravy train going when you're a really really big act and you've got all these people on the payroll that, that, you know, it's, it's in their interest that you keep doing it. You know, that's another thing. And they're all going to tell you you should keep doing it. When Michael was going through like the, the last you know phase of his life and what I had, I had read this before. And then, you know, the, the documentary kind of, you know, confirmed, you know, what I, what I thought was going on. And, and that was the incident where he was uh, pushed off the bike and, and uh, you know, cracked his skull and you know suffered a, a traumatic brain injury. You see that a lot, and 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 you know here in the states we talk a lot about that in, in you know professional sports and you know with our kids who are, who are 
who are active and the, and and I know people you know in my own life who have suffered through traumatic brain injuries and it it changes their personality it changes their perspective sometimes they become you know more reckless and back in the 90s we didn't know a whole hell of a lot about that after 24 years since the, since he died do you have a different perspective on on what happened to Michael now as opposed to when you uh, you know, we're dealing with that that tragedy. Well, you know, I I didn't realize we were going to be talking about this today, and it's a very personal subject. And uh, all I can tell you is that uh, I miss Michael. He's a good guy. He's an amazing singer, great songwriter, and he was my friend. We were we were school friends, and we grew up together. And yeah, look, but I, I'm not a doctor, and uh, it's not my area of expertise. Um, and uh, but but what I can tell you is that I think a lot of people miss him. A lot of people miss you know, including me, and, and, you know, he's got a lot of fans and people that love him, and, and I miss the guy, you know, that's yeah. about all I can tell you. Um, and that's another thing that you're talking about, the length of time since he passed away. Well, during that time, I wasn't exactly doing nothing. It just wasn't all about music for me. Uh, you know, I've been in, interested in agriculture. I'm also into, you know, I have cattle and grains when it rains on a farm <laughs> I've had for 30 years. I do other things, and I think that helps a lot in your life if you've got a balance of something else that you do, that, especially if you're doing it with other people who, who aren't in the music industry and they're outside the music industry, and these people, you know, it helps you to sort of ground yourself when, when you're dealing with life because the entertainment industry, you know, can... It's, it's a pretty strange thing, really, in many ways. It's really abstract, and it can be dangerous in yeah. some way. But, you know, um, and so for me, that's one of the, if I just talk about myself, I'm going to be selfish. I just want to say, yeah, Miss Michael. But that's one of the things that helped me keep grounded is to, is to not just, you know, completely, you know, jump in the deep end with the entertainment thing. Is I have other interests in my life. With the farm and, and, and you know, and being a part of the, the outdoors and play into any you know, switching direction to a more, you know, country-sounding, uh, you know, effort? Yeah, well, that's right, Mike. When we first started talking on this interview, you know, you were talking about my record, uh, the self-titled album I've got. I've also put out an uh, EP called Love Makes the World. It's got uh, five tracks on it. And, but my album that's out at the moment, uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, one of the things is I've always been a songwriter. Anyone that knows my name and connects me with, with like we were talking about in excess before, and I've also worked as a record producer both here and overseas, uh, you know, in various times and different styles of music, including country music here in Australia. I worked with a uh, an artist here called Tanya Kernigan 20 mm-hmm. years ago, produced a record for her, and that introduced me to a whole bunch of people uh, that play just country music, and I found that really interesting as a record producer, and that led me in a funny way, to go into the journey that I've gone into. I just combine my songwriter part of it with the talent of these country musicians. And, and I look, there's a simple, basic thing about country music, I think, that really, I don't know, as a friend of mine said, welcome to the dark side when we we're talking about country. I was like, that's a funny phrase. Because uh, it kind of is, you know, everything, you know, it... it, it it doesn't. It's it's gritty. A lot of country music very gritty. It gets to the core of of what you're talking about with somebody pretty quick, and I think that that's a really healthy thing. I think that you know it's it's not you know it's not all about pop. It's about other things, and I think and the same with the musicianship. You know, people still like to play music live in country music. That's great. You know, um, you know. I, I mean, I'm a fan of live live music, and I hope kids 
continue to be fans of live music because I think it just, you know, the world's a better place for that. How does it feel to get back on stage after you know, all this time and to be playing stuff that's so different and so new? How, is, how has that been for you? Yeah, it's been, actually, it's been good. It's been challenging, I'll be honest with you. You know, like you were saying, I'm now the, the, the front guy and I'm the lead singer and I'm doing all this stuff. And I think the main thing I've just got to, I've realized that I've got to keep a sense of enjoyment with it. And I, I know that sounds like a funny thing to say. It's just not to go, you know, to get too serious about it all and, and to just enjoy it. And then I think other people, I've noticed since I've been playing, you know, small and big stages as a country artist, when I can, of course, because of COVID and all that craziness, uh, you know, it's slammed a lot of things, you know, including live shows, but it slowly seems to be coming back. And I'm finding that as an entertainer, I get better if I play more. You know, I sing more, I play more, I get better. Well, like I said, Andrew, I, I really do like the record. When I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, you know what, this this sounds, it sounds right. It sounds like exactly what you should be doing. And and, and you should be in, oh. incredibly proud of it. It's, it's a really enjoyable record. Thank you. I think my I think my journey uh, as a songwriter has really helped me with that, too, because I'm, you know, I'm feeling a little less sort of, uh, I don't know, I, I, I don't need to compete in the pop sense. Uh, I just, I'm just enjoying writing songs again. And if people, you know, get into what I'm doing, I'll keep doing it. I think part of that is, is a certain level of maturity. I mean, a, 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 a younger artist may have been a little bit more insecure about trying something that, you know, that different and that, and, and that unique to their, to their style. But I think, you know, after, a while of, of, you know, maturing and, and, and knowing what you want to do and what you're capable of, then you do what you want to do as opposed to what everybody else wants you, wants you to do. Well, there you go. Exactly. That's and, it. You know, like we were talking about before, you know, within Excess's career and, and uh, you know, we had that top five hit and we'd had top 40 hits around the world before the kick album came out. But that hit that we had with What You Need uh, that was top five, I know, in the U.S., and I don't know what it was in other countries, but it was a big hit. And uh, and that was the album that followed was Kick, and we had five top ten hits or something off that one record. And yet, you know, yet when we first made the record, people we were like, "This is from outer space. What is this thing?" You know. And and I think that again to bring it to my own career, I, I've learned to have confidence in my own abilities, not to be egotistical, but just to be confident about what I do. And, and don't don't second guess myself too much. You know, it's good to to listen to criticism. And someone says that sucks. You go fair enough. You know, but someone else says, hey, I really like this, and you got an indicator that you're onto something. Well, as a as a guy who has been a fan for an awful long time, it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Andrew. I know you don't have a lot of time today, but. I do appreciate uh, the time you gave me, and best of luck with the record. Thanks for talking to me, Mike, and all the best to you. Right? Safe travels. <laughs> you too. And there you go, Andrew Ferris of NXS. His self-titled debut album is available now. Hope that you enjoyed the show, and if you did, feel free to share it, rate it, distribute it freely amongst all of your friends, and I'd love to know what you think. You can always email me at rock102.com and follow along on Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify. Thanks for listening once again to Baxi's Musical Podcast.